Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 161 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout the remainder of this month, we are going through an anthology entitled The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. Currently, we're in the midst of a case entitled The Adventure of the Veiled Lodger. A woman has put herself in a self-imposed isolation due to an accident that took place while she was working at a circus about 10 years ago. Her husband was killed in this accident, and she alone survived. Right now, she is about to bring some new details to light regarding the rather erratic behavior of this vile beast on what could have possibly compelled it to besmirch the very lovely and attractive visage that she once held. So let us continue reading the conclusion of The Adventure of the Veiled Lodger, Part 2, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. When our handsome deposited us at the house of Mrs. Marlowe, we found that plump lady blocking up the door of her humble but retired abode. It was very clear that her chief preoccupation was lest she should lose a valuable lodger, and she implored us, before showing us up, to say and do nothing which could lead to so undesirable an end. Then, having reassured her, we followed her up the straight, badly carpeted staircase and were shown into the room of the mysterious lodger. It was a close, musty, ill-ventilated place, as might be expected, since its inmate seldom left it. From keeping beasts in a cage, the woman seemed, by some retribution of fate, to have become herself a beast in a cage. She sat now in a broken armchair in the shadowy corner of the room. Long years of inaction had coarsened the lines of her figure, but at some period it must have been beautiful and was still full and voluptuous. A thick, dark veil covered her face, but it was cut off close at the upper lip and disclosed a perfectly shaped mouth and a delicately rounded chin. I could well conceive that she had indeed been a very remarkable woman. Her voice, too, was well modulated and pleasing. My name is not unfamiliar to you, Mr. Holmes, said she. I thought that it would bring you. That is so, madame, though I do not know how you are aware that I was interested in your case. I learned it when I had recovered my health and was examined by Mr. Edmonds, the county detective. I fear I lied to him. Perhaps it would have been wiser had I told the truth. It is usually wiser to tell the truth. But why did you lie to him? Because the fate of someone else depended upon it. I know that he was a very worthless being, and yet I would not have his destruction upon my conscience. We had been so close, so close, 
But has this impediment been removed? Yes, sir. The person that I allude to is dead. Then why should you not now tell the police anything you know? Because there is another person to be considered. The other person is myself. I could not stand the scandal and publicity which would come from a police examination. I have not long to live, but I wish to die undisturbed. And yet I wanted to find one man of judgment to whom I could tell my terrible story, so that when I am gone, all might be understood. You compliment me, madam. At the same time, I am a responsible person. I do not promise you that when you have spoken I may not myself think it my duty to refer the case to the police. I think not, Mr. Holmes. I know your character and methods too well, for I have followed your work for some years. Reading is the only pleasure which fate has left me, and I miss little which passes in the world. But in any case, I will take my chance of the use which you make of my tragedy. It will ease my mind to tell it. My friend and I would be glad to hear it. The woman rose and took from a drawer the photograph of a man. He was clearly a professional acrobat, a man of magnificent physique, taken with his huge arms folded across his swollen chest and a smile breaking from under his heavy moustache. The self-satisfied smile of the man of many conquests. That is Leonardo, she said. Leonardo, the strongman, who gave evidence. The same. And this? This is my husband. It was a dreadful face. A human pig, or rather a human wild boar, for it was formidable in its bestiality. One could imagine that vile mouth champing and foaming in its rage, and one could conceive those small, vicious eyes darting pure malignancy as they looked forth upon the world. Ruffian, bully, beast, it was all written on that heavy-jowled face. Those two pictures will help you gentlemen to understand the story. I was a poor circus girl, brought up on the sawdust and doing springs through the hoop before I was ten. When I became a woman, this man loved me. If such lust as his can be called love, and in an evil moment, I became his wife. From that day, I was in hell, and he, the devil who tormented me. There was no one in the show who did not know of his treatment. He deserted me for others. He tied me down and lashed me with his riding whip when I complained. They all pitied me, and they all loathed him. But what could they do? They feared him, one and all, for he was terrible at times and murderous when he was drunk. Again and again he was had for assault and for cruelty to the beasts. But he had plenty of money, and the fines were nothing to him. The best man all left us, and show began to go downhill. It was only Leonardo 
and I who kept it up, with little Jimmy Griggs, the clown. Poor devil, he had not much to be funny about, but he did what he could to hold things together. Then Leonardo came more and more into my life. You see what he was like. I know now the poor spirit that was hidden in that splendid body, but compared to my husband, he seemed like the angel Gabriel. He pitied me and helped me. Still at last, our intimacy turned to love. Deep, deep, passionate love. Such love as I dreamed of, but never hoped to feel. My husband suspected it, but I think that he was a coward as well as a bully, and that Leonardo was the one man that he was afraid of. He took revenge in his own way, by torturing me more than ever. One night, my cries brought Leonardo to the door of our van. We were near tragedy that night, and soon my lover and I understood that it could not be avoided. My husband was not fit to live. We planned that he should die. Leonardo had a clever, scheming brain. It was he who planned it. I do not say that to blame him, for I was ready to go with him every inch of the way. But I should never have had the wit to think of such a plan. We made a club. Leonardo made it. And in the leading head, he fastened five long steel nails, the points outwards, with just such a spread as the lion's paw. That was to give my husband his death blow and yet to leave evidence that it was the lion which we would loose who had done the deed. It was a pitch-dark night when my husband and I went down, as was our custom, to feed the beast. We carried with us the raw meat in a zinc pail. Leonardo was waiting at the corner of the big van, which we should have to pass before we reached the cage. He was too slow and we walked past him before he could strike. But he followed us on tiptoe, and I heard the crash as the club smashed my husband's skull. My heart leaped with joy at the sound. I sprang forward, and I undid the catch which held the door of the great lion's cage. And then the terrible thing happened. You may have heard how quick these creatures are to scent human blood and how it excites them. Some strange instinct had told the creature in one instant that a human being had been slain. As I slipped to the bars, it bounded out and was on me in an instant. Leonardo could have saved me. If he had rushed forward and struck the beast with his club, he might have cowed it. But the man lost his nerve. I heard him shout in his terror, and then I saw him turn and fly. At the same instant, the teeth of the lion met in my face. Its hot, filthy breath had already poisoned me, and I was hardly conscious of pain. With the palms of my hands, I tried to push the great steaming blood-stained jaws away from me, and I screamed for help. I was conscious that the camp was stirring, and then dimly, I remember a group of men, Leonardo, Griggs, and others, 
dragging me from under the creature's paws. That was my last memory, Mr. Holmes, for many a weary month. When I came to myself and saw myself in the mirror, I cursed that lion. Oh, how I cursed him. Not because he had torn away my beauty, but because he had torn away my life. I had but one desire, Mr. Holmes, and I had enough money to gratify it. It was that I should cover myself so that my poor face should be seen by none, and that I should dwell where none whom I had ever known should find me. That was all that was left me to do, and that is what I have done. A poor wounded beast that has crawled into its hole to die. That is the end of Eugenia Ronda. We sat in silence for some time after the unhappy woman had told her story. Then Holmes stretched out his long arm and patted her hand with such a show of sympathy as I had seldom known him to exhibit. Poor girl, he said. Poor girl. The ways of fate are indeed hard to understand. If there is not some compensation hereafter, then the world is a cruel jest. But what of this man, Leonardo? I never saw him or heard from him again. Perhaps I've been wrong to feel so bitterly against him. He might as soon have loved one of the freaks whom we'd carried round the country as the thing which the lion had left. But a woman's love is not so easily set aside. He had left me under the beast's claws. He had deserted me in my need. And yet, I could not bring myself to give him the gallows. For myself, I cared nothing what became of me. What could be more dreadful than my actual life? But I stood between Leonardo and his fate. And he is dead? He was drowned last month when bathing near Margate. I saw his death in the paper. And what did he do with this five-clawed club, which is the most singular and ingenious part of all your story? I cannot tell, Mr. Holmes. There's a chalk pit by the camp with a deep green pool at the base of it, perhaps in the depth of that pool. Well, well... It's of little consequence now. The case is closed. Yes, said the woman. The case is closed. We had risen to go, but there was something in the woman's voice which arrested Holmes' attention. He turned swiftly upon her. Your life is not your own, he said. Keep your hands off it. What use is it to anyone? How can you tell? The example of patient suffering is in itself the most precious of all lessons to an impatient world. The woman's answer was a terrible one. She raised her veil and stepped forward into the light. I wonder if you would bear it, she said. It was horrible. No words can describe the framework of a face when the face itself is gone. 
two living and beautiful brown eyes looking sadly out from that grisly ruin did but make the view more awful. Holmes held up his hand in a gesture of pity and protest, and together we left the room. Two days later, when I called upon my friend, he pointed with some pride to a small blue bottle upon his mantelpiece. I picked it up. There was a red poison label. A pleasant almondy odor rose when I opened it. Prussic acid, said I. Exactly. It came by post. I send you my temptation. I will follow your advice. That was the message. I think, Watson, we can guess the name of the brave woman who sent it. End of The Adventure of the Veiled Launcher, Part 2, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I was a little bit shocked uh, by the conclusion of this case, because it doesn't line up with your typical Sherlock Holmes cases. And I think that was the reason why Watson chose to record this specific one, because it shows another side to our good friend, beloved detective Sherlock Holmes as a man who has such frigid and cold and exacting logic, doesn't seem to have a care for anybody involved in a case, especially the villains. And yet here we see another side to Holmes, a man who uses his intellectual superiority, let's just call it for lack of a better phrase, to understand that this woman, who incredibly disfigured in her face, is calling Holmes out to her humble apartment, not because she wants any form of sympathy towards herself or um, her lover or anything like that. She's wanting confirmation and justification for a future action she intends to take on her own life. And Holmes, I think, as she's telling this story, recognizes this fact and is like, I'm not going to be a part of this. It was brilliant, for sure, the, the plot that was hatched to take out her abusive husband. But I'm not going to allow her to take her own life as it feels like she, because she paints this picture like the botched attempt to murder her husband, which did succeed, but ultimately ended up in the lion attacking her next, was in a sense a form of like karma or something. Like, oh yeah, I did an awful thing to another person. And so this is karma saying, you know, you done messed up and you know, I deserve this, so I'm just going to take another way out of my life and and take it because karma won and I don't deserve to live. I'm an awful human being. And she's just wanting, you know, I think she was just trying to, like, feed into Sherlock's 
ego a little bit and you know be like oh now you finally know what happened like you understand what must be done next and Sherlock's like no no case is worth the harm of another person's life you've clearly paid your punishment for what you've done against your late husband but there is no justification for taking your own life afterwards that's not yours to decide and um very a very powerful statement made by sherlock and ultimately bears wonderful fruit as this woman mails him her last vial of poison and so i just i mean this was like a really good case like this was really solid not like the resolutions of other cases where you just see holmes like gloating like yeah they did themselves in because of my obscure knowledge of this chemical or animal or what have you you know i clearly find their method of murder and crime elementary watson because uh they have they are no match for my wits but instead it's it's a man who understands a plea and a cry for help when he hears it and and offers in his own Sherlockian way uh, a rebuke to this woman for the audacity she would have of thinking that taking her own life is a viable option in this situation. The witness that she has to others is enormous and incredible, um, and she can still have an impact on other people's lives despite the decision that she made um i think that's that's a really beautiful picture painted i also want to issue on another note a public apology to the fictional character griggs the clown because i really did a number on that guy and really did him dirty and he's just trying he's just trying to keep his his circus troupe together in an otherwise very toxic working relationship. And I gotta admire that man, you know? All he wants to do is see other people smile. And what, what do I give him? Nothing but verbal abuse over the evils of clownness and a very traumatizing experience I had as a child, however, does not excuse present circumstances. Like, there are thousands of Griggses out there just trying to put a smile on people's faces. I had no right to attack the clown community. And so um, I think this also gave me a really fresh perspective on those in that profession. And I don't know. I don't know if I'd go to a circus or invite a clown over for my birthday or something. But, you know, it's given me a fresh perspective on clowns everywhere thank you so much for listening to another episode of reading cadence i'm your host the displaced wisconsinite phil olson next week we are going to embark upon the final case in this compendium of the casebook of sherlock holmes entitled 
The Adventure of Old Shuskum Place. I just love how British people name their estates. The Three Gables, Old Shuskum Place. It's just very quaint, very British. But until then, as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote.